Water's Edge podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout the Murray-Darling Basin and Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Coming up, we look at why there's a perception the Murray-Darling Basin Authority hasn't been managing the River Murray properly. And the problem is that there's no prioritisation that river operators can look to to essentially determine whose water gets to go down the river. How communities are sceptical about the role of the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. I think there's a sentiment out there that, that they're the buggers that have got our water. Um, and we want the, we want them to making good use of it because we if it wasn't taken off us we could have we could be using it better. And what can be done to address community concerns about water management? We found that it can be difficult for the community to get information on the reason for a specific flow event that may be passing through their area of the basin or, or through their the river next to where they live. I'm your host Annabel Hudson. Today, I'm joined by Inspector General of Water Compliance, Troy Grant, and Inquiry and Review Assistant Directors, Ken Lonnie and Joe Vile. This is Water's Edge, and welcome to The Conversation. All right, well, welcome to today's episode of Water's Edge. Today, we're going to be looking in depth at the Steady As It Flows report. Uh, Joining me on the line again is the Inspector General of Water Compliance, um, Troy Grant. We're going to be doing this episode in two parts. So the first part is going to be looking at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and their river operations. And then we're going to look at the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder as part two of this podcast. So good afternoon, Troy. How are you going? Yeah, terrific. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks for having us again on Water's Edge. And alongside Troy, we've got Ken Lonnie, who has, what's been your role in in this um, report? So I was the, uh, essentially the IG project manager for the river operations section of this assessment. Perfect. So Troy, can you tell us what, I guess, the purpose behind the Steady As It Flows report is? Why did you want to initiate this? Yeah, sure, Annabelle. And look, this all comes about... um, responding directly to the major concerns that those throughout the basin had when the Inspector General of Water Compliance Office was being established. The overwhelming sentiment across the basin was a level of distrust uh, of agencies and jurisdictions in relation to their water management. And at the top of that list was the MDBA, uh, particularly the operations of the River Murray, Uh, about their decision-making, whether there was evidence of maladministration, how they were arriving at their decisions, and the information as a consequence of their decisions about the quality or lack of or an availability of of information. What I heard overwhelmingly is over the decade that the Basin Plan has been uh, around, that a lot of agencies often go out and listen to the community, but they don't hear what they're saying. So... I decided to put together a consultative assessment to understand how they were operating, uh, what the rules were in relation to the Water Act, uh, the Basin Plan and uh, what we found. How do you feel the community is going to respond to this report? Look, the the honest answer is I think that 
there's a certain level of set uh, opinion and viewpoints that's been wetted in there, whether there's fair, that's fair or unfair over the MDBA's performance over the last decade is an opinion and people are entitled to their opinions. But our job is to, on the back of evidence, to find the evidence and independently articulate what our findings were. So not everyone's going to be happy with this report and we acknowledge that. Uh, but it's important as we develop and we mature as an organisation that uh, people come to trust us, that we will call it out, good, bad or indifferent. And not everything's perfect. And as Ken and uh, later on, Joe will explain, there's plenty of rooms for improvement as well. And, and hopefully those improvements will also negate and, and minimise the, the issues and concerns people have going forward. All right. Well, we might get into the first part of the podcast, which is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's river operations. So, Ken, what are river operations? Good question, Annabelle. So, the River Murray is what's referred to as a regulated river. And what that essentially means is that the river itself contains within it a series of water infrastructure, such as dams, weirs, locks. And what that allows us to do is essentially control the flow of the river, hence being a regulated river. So river operations in, in broad terms simply describes that process. So um, closing, closing dam gates to allow storages to fill up in the winter months and then releasing or delivering that water to users downstream in the summer months. So that's essentially uh, what river operations is all about. It's maximising the storage of water so that then it can be delivered to irrigators, towns and the environment downstream when it's needed most during those hot months. So what role does the Murray-Darling Basin Authority play in river operations? So the Murray-Darling Basin Authority essentially operates the River Murray on behalf of the southern basin states, uh, being New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, and they do that, as Troy alluded to, under the terms set out in the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement. So they essentially oversee the river as a whole. So whilst you may have um, states operating individual uh, infrastructure such as dams, so Dartmouth and Victoria, for example, is operated by Goulburn Murray Water, uh, Hume's operated by Water New South Wales. The MDBA oversees the operations of the river as a whole, and it is the MDBA that determines when storages are to fill up and then the volume of releases that are to be made from those storages uh, to meet the demands of users. What was the scope of the assessment? So this assessment was conducted essentially in two parts. The first part was uh, to assess the adequacy of the, the water measurement throughout the river. So in order for the MDBA to undertake their river operations function, they rely on measurement data from gauges right throughout the river. So the first part was looking at how adequate is that coverage of, of that measurement? Is it, is it up to scratch? The second part of the assessment was whether the data analysis process is undertaken by the MDBA, once they get that data, it's essentially what do they do with it? So their, their modelling that underpins all their rebrisations decisions, uh, is that sound? Is it, is it fit for purpose? And did you look at that data because that's what the community was kind of indicating, that that was a problem area? So the community's concerns probably weren't that specific. Um, it is a... Uh, it's a complex and bit of a niche area. Um, so much of the community may not realise that, that the decisions of the NWBA are underpinned by a series of gauges in the river that will tell them uh, things like flow rates, the height of the river, the temperature of the water, things like that. So, um, but 
that data is vital to um, informing the MDBA how to actually run the river. So as Troy alluded to, we conducted this as a consultative assessment. So what that also meant was uh, to undertake this review, uh, a large part of it was a series of interviews with obviously with the MDBA River Ops team, as well as um, representatives from the uh, Vic New South Wales and South Australian governments who, who help uh, operate the system. But we also um, commissioned interviews with quite a large number of external stakeholders in the community, um, some of who whom have voiced these concerns because we wanted to make sure their, their views were taken into consideration as we did this assessment. Something we're going to be touching on in this episode is the, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan versus the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement. Troy, can you give us an overview of what the difference is and what the Inspector General has oversight on? Yeah, sure. And Look, Ken can um, expand on this, but the Murray-Darling Basin Plan obviously encompasses the entire basin and it's uh, a big broad document with um, lots of objectives underpinning that uh, is our WRPs which uh, allows us to do a sustainable diversion limit uh, count on an annual basis of water take and, and measure how that's performing. Uh, there's intergovernmental agreements that are tied to the plan uh, in relation to different aspects of of the plan regarding metering and, and a whole heap of other measures. Uh, and the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement is uh, an agreement between those parties, being New South Wales, Victoria uh, and South Australia, regarding the management and the decision-making process about the River Murray, uh, the water releases there and the management uh, along the Murray, so the delivery of water along that system. It's an agreement that's 110 years old, so it gives our listeners an indication of how long the jurisdictions have tackled the very challenging uh, matter of delivering water throughout the River Murray, but it doesn't directly come under our purview of responsibilities. So in a nutshell, we have oversight on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, not the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement. Well, we, we have... Um, some opportunity to oversight the water management as a whole uh, in the Murray-Darling, but we don't have any direct legislative or statutory powers to uh, compel, influence or, or be a, a, a stakeholder in what the outcomes are relative to that agreement. So we can uh, find these observations and, and make commentary on it and, and, uh, and point people in the right directions, but it's not our responsibility to resolve that issue. The agreement sets out the rules for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority to operate the river, and they're quite specific rules, but it doesn't actually talk about water for the environment. That's introduced as part of the, uh, the basin plan. So because of that, um, what can happen uh, in, in times of really high demand, you can have water orders from irrigators, you can have water that you need to get to towns and communities, and then you may have a big order of water from environmental water holders, such as the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. And if they all want that down the system at the same time, sometimes it can't be done, and that's what's called a delivery shortfall event. So it is, it is rare, but it's a, really, uh, it's a real risk. It has happened in the past. And the problem is that there's no prioritisation that river operators can look to to essentially determine whose water gets to go down the river. So it is rare, like I said, because environmental water is usually planned months in ahead, so it, it's usually managed. But there have been specific instances of this in the past, and there is going to be instances again 
in the future. So this report called that out, identified it, and uh, it's certainly an issue that that needs attention and, and probably needs resolving sooner rather than later. It's a bit of a balancing act between managing water for the environment because if you don't have water for the environment, you don't have a river system. But then you also need to take into consideration the needs of farmers and irrigators and people providing food for the nation. So how how do we get that right? Is that something that's just going to be a bit of a long game, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. I think there just needs to be an, an updated agreement that uh, understands that the models they use need a little bit of flexibility and uh, application sort of framework around it because not only is it just the dry times where it's a competition for access to the waters, but it's actually in today's world where we're, we're swamped with water that we uh, have arrangements where water has to be delivered, but then you have over bank flows and, and flooding because of the management and releases of water from certain um, infrastructure as well that you have to uh, balance. And what impinges on that is what's happening in another area of, of the plan is what's attention's been given to the constraints in the system as well. So that there needs to be not just a balanced approach about uh, who gets what water when and, and dry times and wet times, but it's also uh, trying to update the modelling and, and the arrangements to make sure they're contemporary with um, what's happening environmentally, that the impacts of climate change that are coming and, uh, and what's happening here and now, because the fear factor, people fear that you know, they're going to get a big mass release of environmental water uh, into a community when there's wet times. So that really comes down to a need and another key finding is better communication because there's it's a very complex space. I think there's 20 odd agencies who are involved in decision making who populate various websites and, and into the public domain bits of information. It can get very confusing out there. When you were looking at these things, what did you find? So I'll break this into two parts as well in line with, with the assessment. So on, on part one, which is around the adequacy of water measurement. So look, overall, the the review found that the, that the level of measurement points or gauges in the river, it is adequate and it gives the MDBA enough information for them to operate the river efficiently and effectively. So that was, that was a pleasing finding from the review. There were a couple of issues identified, however, so the first one being that the operating environment, um, that being the you know, the system that uh, MDBA is operating in, is becoming um, far more complex and less predictable. And that's there's two main drivers behind that. One is climate change, so you're getting uh, much hotter and drier summers, for example. Um, and the second thing, uh, adding to the complexity of the environment, is the change in demand patterns. So things like the rise in permanent plantations in the lower Murray uh, means that where the water needs to be delivered to is changing from how it was, uh, say, so 20, there's, there's 20, more of a demand ago. further downstream than there used to be. Correct. Yeah. So you have a concentration of uh, um, plantings that require water at certain time of the year, um, and so there's there's large parcels of water that now need to be delivered to. A smaller area essentially so and because of capacity constraints within the system that makes the job of river operators a bit more challenging um, so the operating environment as i said is becoming 
less predictable, more complex. And what that's actually driving the need for is some more additional gauging points in the system. So they're fine for now, but this review did find that there, there will be a need for additional gauging points in the system, probably in the near future, um, particularly into on the tributaries that flow into the river itself. Um, the, the second issue uh, in this part that was identified was the absence of a data standard. Uh, so the, the data that's collected from the river gauges, there's no standard that basically determines that that data will come in a consistent manner. So an example um, would be that uh, an officer who goes out and reads a, a gauge in the river might do it at 10 o'clock in the morning one day, the next day they might do it at two in the afternoon. And you're gonna get slightly different readings for something that should be done on a consistent basis. And why is it important that it's done on a consistent basis? So data consistency is really important because that data will inform the models that the MWA will, will run um, to, to show how the, how the river's being run, uh, how much water they can put down the system. So essentially they need consistent data coming in. Otherwise, what they have to do is essentially uh, manually intervene, um, clean up that data essentially, so it then can be fed into the models that they use. So look, it's not a big issue, but it was something that, that was identified. And what it means is that it essentially makes the job of river operators just a little bit harder when it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. And Troy, have you spoken to the MDBA about this steady as it flows report and in particular these these findings um, and, and potential need for, um, you know, an agreed data standard and, um, you know, more adequate measurement points and, and data collection? Uh, yeah, uh, we have. I've, I've spoken to the CEO, Andrew McConville, and uh, they were um, very pleased uh, that there was an independent set of eyes uh, that were having a look at the river operations they expressed I think was a very genuine desire to continually improve uh, their business operations and and anything that we found uh, they were certainly uh, keen to learn about and and look at implementing to essentially make their own job easier because they're the ones who are in the firing line for what of a better term uh, when it comes to some of the dispute over decisions that are made so the more uh, clarified, um, more accurate and more consistent evidence on what they're ba- making their decisions on only helps them to defend the decisions that are made and uh, takes away some of the angst that uh, is out there. This is Water's Edge. For more information, visit www.igwc.gov.au. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and Joe Vile has been doing a lot of work and looking at this as part of the Steady As It Flows report. So, Joe, can you tell us uh, what is the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and what are they responsible for? Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks for having me on the show today. So the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, um, it's also known as its acronym, the CHU. So uh, there is a fair saturation of uh, water management acronyms. So the CHU is one that we'll introduce Absolutely. today. Absolutely, yes. We might refer to it as the CHU. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an independent statutory position established under the Water Act in 2007. And it's responsible for managing the Australian government's environmental water entitlements in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, and has a presence all the way across the basin, not in any particular state. It's, uh, it is basin-wide. Um, and, and the water that it holds is often referred to as water for the environment or held environmental water, and it's used to keep the rivers and wetlands of the Murray-Darling Basin healthy. 
Um, importantly, the functions of the CHU are closely tied to delivering the outcomes of the entire basin plan. So Troy, why did you want to look at the CHU as part of the Steady As It Flows report? They were subject to a lot of suspicion and often maligned about the decision-making processes they undertook uh, about the use of this precious resource and um, they're in a competitive space I guess that consumptive water so that's water that's extracted um, and, and utilised whether by irrigators on crops for example or by the environment into uh, environmental assets, whether it be a wetland or, or critical um, part of the environment, they are often accused or suspected of not getting great value out of that water uh, was the sentiment that we were picking up. And therefore, if that was the case, uh, we were asked to, were the processes they were using to make their decisions justified? Were they operating outside the laws or the rules? And uh, it's a little known fact that the chew are license holders of water is the same as an irrigator is. They have to pay the, the fees that the same as the irrigators do. They have to abide by uh, licensing um, the same as an irrigator does. Anyone that owns water is treated the same and they're treated fairly. So they have a set amount of entitlement, uh, but they don't always use their entitlement. And often they don't use their full entitlement, which is the case over history. So they're governed by a lot of rules and people want to make sure that they were acting within the rules. So why do you think that people don't trust them? Because there's been a number of reviews, from what I understand, over the years into the chew. So that kind of indicates that maybe there is this public perception that, that they're not trusted, but this report has found otherwise. I think, Annabelle, just to start off on that one, and Troy Troy can come in with his with his views, um, the chew is a relatively new concept for many basin communities. Um, and it, it also has a huge challenge to com communicate the complex science and decision-making that it's charged with. So um, it is operating in, a, um, in, in the wider uh, world of water management in the basin, um, which is a, uh, a busy, ever-changing place. Um, we found that it can be difficult for the community to get information on the reason for a specific flow event that may be passing through their area of the basin or, or through the, the river next to where they live, including what the objectives and expected benefits of that flow are, um, and that can flow on to into, into misconceptions. So that was an area that we, we found could um, sort of lead to mistrust. So um, in this report, we've looked into some of those concerns and report report back on them. Um, as, as a short response in terms of trust and transparency, we actually found that in many cases the CHU has been able to build the, the trust and buy in from people along the rivers. And obviously at the moment you look out the window, I don't know what it's like up where you are Troy, but it's pelting down rain at the moment and the ground is so, so wet that, you know, there's, there's just so much water to go around and in the community there's potentially, I guess, people thinking there's so much water coming through in the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. They have these um, releases that they need to get downstream and people might be worried about flooding. So does that kind of contribute that talk in the community about the role of the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and, and um, how much water is being released for the environment? Does that kind of contribute to the community concern? And is that something that was sort of reflected in what, what you heard from the community? Uh, without doubt, it's uh, the 
dry times or the wet times, I, I guess, bring two extremes. Uh, that you know, in the dry times, there's an allocation of water that needs to to get down the system to to keep that the rivers healthy, uh, to keep them sustainable, and and to be doing their job. Uh, and in the wet times, it's uh, important for people not to be concerned that just because they have an allocation, they're suddenly going to release uh, water down a very uh, full river and, and onto sodden ground, which is uh, going to cause localised impacts on over overbank flooding and, and those sorts of issues as well. So that's where the strength of their communications is critical to take away that apprehension and articulate the decisions when they do release water. Uh, how it's being released, when it's being released, why and where it's going to, and, and then what the the benefit to everyone is going to be as a result of that release. Yep, and this report has found that the CHU is operating within, um, I guess, their responsibilities. Is that right, Joe? That's right. Yeah, we'll go into a little bit more detail about the specific areas that we looked into, um, but we didn't find any evidence of non-compliance on the on the choose part in this report. So, well, let's let's look at some of the um, findings. I guess what did you find about water planning processes and planning for the future? Yeah. So, so first of all, with the project, we looked at water planning and management. Um, we actually found this is an area of strength for the CHU. Their water planning processes are consistent with the basin plan. They follow the environmental watering principles of coordinating with other water managers, working with local communities, and maximising environmental benefits. Um, however, we did find that providing more accessible information on the core issues of water planning might help the community understand how they're using their water. Um, we talk about something called volumetric measurement. So what is a volumetric measurement and what did this report find about it? Yeah, so water use is measured in different ways and for different purposes in the river systems. A fundamental purpose is for water accounting to make sure a water user is taking the right amount of water at the right time and is operating in accordance with their licence conditions. Um, as Troy pointed out, the choose water is accounted for in the same way as other users, such as irrigators. The choose water is released from storages or delivered to offtake points in the river where it can flow or be pumped into sites such as wetlands. So when the chew does order its water, it's debited from their water allocation accounts, which are maintained by state water management agencies. It's probably an interesting area to, to pinpoint in the volumetric measurement is that the over time, the river, the regulated river systems in the basin um, have la largely been developed, um, built up for uh, irrigated agriculture and you know human consumption in towns. So when we talk about the the introduction, the establishment of the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder through the Water Act in 2007. Um, they've actually got a new set of um, objectives that don't necessarily match the delivery of water for irrigation. It demonstrates how complex uh, water management is, but they're, they're an agency, I guess, that have been hampered by a policy area um, called water recovery. Um, so they've got off to a start where you know, the federal government had a policy to recover water, which is buy water off landowners to give to the chew. So uh, I think there's a sentiment out there that, that they're the buggers that have got our water. Um, <laughs> and we want, we want them to making good use of it because we, if it wasn't taken off us, we could have... We could be using um, it for... We could be using it better. Right? Yeah. And that's just a fundamental process. But 
the re the reality about water recovery is whilst it was a policy area and and set that that uh, you know recovered water from different valleys to different quantums, it was always a decision of um, the individual irrigators as to whether uh, they sold that water allocation to form part of a, a catchment's um, water recovery and and you know it adds to the debate and the contention out there that some valleys believe that they've done their sh fair share of heavy lifting in contributing consumptive water into the environmental water holders account um, and they don't have any more to give that they want to um, you know maintain their their volume so they can continue to produce food and fiber in their area keep the economy strong and, and service their towns and communities um, and, and that's not an area that we deal with in the policy space but we deal in the compliance space to make sure that they are doing um, their role within the rules uh, they are acting properly and that there is value there so we we measure the outcome while we're not at the front end of the debate about whether they should recover water or how much or and that sort of stuff so um, but that certainly I think underpins where a lot of that trust and, and suspicion originated from and it's incumbent on the two to continually feedback as we've said a couple of times now that strong communication of what where and how the water's being used and and where it's benefiting the broader basin as well as individual areas. Do you think the chew's improved over time? Absolutely Annabelle. Um, there's for a relatively new organisation, um, managing a new asset in the water management framework, um, we, we thought they were doing quite a solid job. Um, as Troy's pointed out, they've received a high level of public scrutiny with uh, multiple reviews since 2013, um, and they've got a, a strong track record of, of reading those reviews and heeding the recommendations um, and improving. Where to from here, Troy? What's, what's next after the Steady As It Flows report? So the observations in our report, uh, which everyone can can read, uh, will be continue to be followed up on, and we'll continue to have that engagement uh, with both the agencies to see how they're tracking uh, in implementing those observations. And we encourage everyone, despite them potentially not being happy with our findings, that if they have any suspicions or concerns about potential maladministration or poor decision making, please let us know because. Uh, the days of marking your own homework are over uh, in relation to the basin plan management. We are now the independent body that will um, go in, deep dive, do the assessment, find the evidence and, and report back with the honest independent truth about where things sit in any concerns about water management. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ken, Joe and Troy for joining us on today's episode of Water's Edge. As always, you can find all of the Inspector General's reports, reviews and audits on the website. That's igwc.gov.au. Thank you so much, Ken, Joe and Troy for joining us. Thanks, Annabelle. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you. Water's Edge is produced by the Inspector General of Water Compliance, Australian Government, Canberra. For more information, visit www.igwc.gov.au.